I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Welcome to Lama Suryadas's Awakening Now podcast. This podcast is an expression of our shared connection. We depend on you, our community of listeners, for support. Please go to mindpodnetwork.com/suryadas and you can either click on the donate button or bookmark the Amazon link. We get a small percentage of all of your purchases. Or you can go and sign up for a free trial with Audible.com. Your support will allow Lama Suryadas to continue to illuminate the timeless Tibetan wisdom. So looking, seeing, and releasing, it's a great reminder how to see through appearances and not be deceived but taken in by them mindfulness really means mindfulness remembering to remember non-reactive choiceless awareness present awareness not being taken in by impermanent selfless or ownerless momentary phenomena or noumena mind stuff neither outer nor inner stuff arisings appearances stuff Just because there are thoughts doesn't mean you have to go down the chain of just get tangled up in a chain of discursive thinking. You're just thinking and back to awareness, seeing through the transparent bubble-like thoughts, not reifying them into a whole story, spending five minutes or five hours or five, 50 years in that state of arrested development. So... Remindful of the view, remembering to remember, seeing through in this practice, sky gazing, observing the emptiness or the subjectivity, not getting deceived by momentary, impermanent, essenceless appearances. Of course, we 
see or hear or feel or sense or taste or smell. But it's not what happens, but what we make of it that makes all the difference. Of course, when we go out of here, when we see a red light, we might very well need to react differently than when we see a green light. But in here, not so much. We're throwing the clutch. We're putting the gear shift in, in neutral. The engine may be spinning, but the clutch is separated from the gears. The wheels are not going to turn and take us anywhere. The wheels of karma. And eventually the gas runs out and the engine slows down and runs out of momentum. It's a state in Dzogchen meditation called the exhaustion of all phenomena. It's a lot better than the usual state of exhaustion that I could feel. It's where all the shit is worn out, not me. The buoyant, natural, great perfection. Beyond sacred and mundane, everything is it, is gorgeous, is beautiful, appreciating it as it is. Still feeling pain and pleasure, of course, as different, but not getting depressed because of the pain, not despairing because of sadness, happy and sad. The, the waves, the seesawing of emotional life, no problem. Sad doesn't have to degenerate into despair and depression, and happy doesn't have to degenerate into elation and manicism. Again, the middle way, a balance. I think the middle way is Buddha's greatest teaching, actually. Not too tight, not too loose. Not too much and not too little. And the middle way doesn't mean a narrow razor's edge down the middle of the road, either. There are many lanes in the middle way. And room to move or to weave. Just like when you're riding a bike, you don't ride it rigid like a person in a body cast. You keep your balance with little adjustments, but it's almost invisible because you know how to do it. We even do a little swooping and swerving. The middle lane has many lanes. Just let's try to stay out of the ditches on either side. The ditches like nihilism, nothing matters, or materialism, everything is what it seems to be. Nihilism and materialism, or all or nothing, or always and never. Anybody hear that? Perhaps from their partner or their kid? I hate you. I'm never going to talk to you again. You didn't give me what I wanted in my lunchbox. <laughs> you won't let me go out tonight. And then we carry it on as adults, just telling our people, you know, you always, you never. It's a slight exaggeration, or more than slight. But worse is how it appears, I believe, in our mind, in our, in our own inner dialogue, in the inner theater, in that, that you know... That inner th uh, Shakespearean theater, tragic comedy. The happy faces and the fa sad faces. And believing in them and getting so sucked into the movie that we forget it's a movie until it ends and the lights go on. So similarly, awakening is like that. Awakening from the dream of illusion. The dream, of the things are what we perceive them to be. So we say in Buddhism, like an illusion, not that it is an illusion, like a dream, not that it is a dream. And this has important implications. For example, if your child is in bed at night, crying and screaming, and you rush to their room, and you see them tossing and turning and sweating and screaming, and they're dreaming, and they're tearing at their PJs, and they're 
throwing the pillows around and they're screaming, the tiger, the tiger, the tiger's going to get me. Don't let the tiger get me. Shoot the tiger. If you're a wise parent, even if you happen to have a gun in your closet, like some of my friends in Texas, you don't necessarily go and get the gun and start blasting in the kid's room, do you? Because you're not taken in by their dream. You're an adult. You understand a little bit about dreams. Maybe even more than a little about dreams and the nature of reality. And you try to wake them up. Or you soothe them. You don't just say, oh, it's just a dream and forget about it and go back to your room, letting them cry and scream. You don't say. It's a dream, but it's a nightmare. You try to soothe them. Well, wake them up from the dream. You understand that good dreams and bad dreams are just dreams. But there could be another state of freedom from both, and that's wake up. And that's what awakening is like, awakening from the dream of delusion and appearances. That's the awakening that Buddha discovered. That's what we talk about when we talk about enlightenment or awakening. Awakening from the dream of illusion, the dream of suffering, the dream of separate selfhood. The dream of separateness that makes us, that helps us feel lonely or uh, incomplete or far away or, or, or not belonging or separate, whatever. So this kind of practice helps us see through the veils of illusion, helps us thin and purify it, of course, but also to see through the veil even while it's there, just like we could see through a screen on a window. You see the screen, you also see through the screen to what's outside. You don't try to put your head through it, you see the screen. It's not just transparent, it's translucent. It's really transrealescent. Unreal, yet real enough, functioning. So we try to make this into a good dream rather than a nightmare or a better world. Try to protect the environment. Leave a better world for our kids and the other generations and all the species of flora and fauna, of course. But we also remember that you can only do your best and you have to let go also. Whatever happens, happens. As it says in the Tao Te Ching, perhaps the wisest book ever written, and I recommend it to you. The Tao Te Ching by Stephen Mitchell, Stephen Mitchell's translation of Lao Tzu's The Tao Te Ching. The master does her best thoroughly and lets go, knowing that whatever happens will happen. So it's not a passive approach. You do your best, you give it your all, and you let go. Not being over-attached to the results. Not over-invested in the outcomes. The Hindu classic, the Bhagavad Gita, teaches likewise to do our duty, to do what needs to be done, and not be overly attached to the outcome. Just like parenting, there's a difference between mothering and smothering. You may not want to be a tiger mom or a helicopter dad. You might not want to be pulling the flowers up in the garden by their heads. But knowing how to, when to seed and when to fertilize and when to water and when to leave it alone. Again, the middle way, not too tight and not too loose. Not too much and not too little. So similarly, with midwifing our own spiritual awakening, the blossoming of our own inner child. Middle way, it's such a great touchstone for our spiritual life and for wisdom and and sanity. Especially in these very extreme or volatile times. I don't go by a day without hearing some Armageddon, cataclysmic, 
opinion or reading it about how the, the environment's done for, you know. We're going to go over the cliff of environmental ruination in 10 years or 20 years or 30 or 40 years or 50 or it's already too late to reverse it or other things. We used to hear this about nuclear proliferation. So, of course, we need to do everything we can to alleviate those dangers, but still to have some perspective on the bigger picture of geologic time and space and the birthing and, 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 and deathing of solar systems and planets and the sun and the earth and the billions of beings who are on this planet right now, not just me and my friends and loved ones. Not always, what about me? How does it affect me? As my grandmother used to say, no matter who was elected, no matter what happens, how is it going to affect us Jews? What's going to happen to us? Meaning, are we going to have to run away from this country too? Or whatever, why ever she was conditioned to say that. But we're the same. What about me? What about me? So, in this practice, undoing the habit of overdoing, of over-clinging and, 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 and fixating and, and attaching and concretizing, reifying things. Allowing, the wisdom of allowing openness and spaciousness and clarity to proceed unhindered. We're replicating a way of being by doing this kind of non-meditation. We're replicating a way of being that we can get used to, that we can take off the cushion and out of the silent, protected um, hothouse here and live anywhere in the world this way. Not just like a precious... Uh, orchid that has to live in a very specialized hothouse, like here in this beautiful Garrison Institute, in this beautiful Zogen retreat, in this beautiful gathering of kindred spirits, but anywhere. Be more like the grass, the weeds, the clover that can grow anywhere. Not just here in this protected environment like precious orchids. So getting used to living in a simple and yet very present, appreciative way. Undoing the habit of overdoing. Undoing or, or reconditioning the conditioning. Karma means conditioning and cause and effect conditioning. Reconditioning and eventually deconditioning. Excuse me, which is freedom. Autonomy within interconnectedness. It doesn't mean we can fly, but our spirit can soar. And we don't have to fly. That's not the goal of this path. Spiritual freedom, enlightenment, bliss, wisdom, and love is the goal. And it's very doable. If I can do it, you can do it. Anybody can do it, I assure you. It's not just the Dalai Lama or the 1% that can do it. Let's occupy that space of spirit ourselves. If I can do it, you can do it. Anybody can do it. I'm just a Jewish jock from Long Island. Nothing special. My mother still wants me to come home to Long Island to be a, become a rabbi. <laughs> Any questions or sharing, please, before I go there? <laughs> no, that's tomorrow. <sighs> it's good we have a nice, young, energetic Mike Hopper. Thank you, Judy. So 
my question is um, it kind of, what this gentleman back here said earlier today and what we were talking about now taking this way of being this way of accepting and allowing and non-dual experience I feel like I also had an experience like that but it was about a year and a half ago and it was very intense and um, it caused me to not really understand the world anymore, how it worked. Nothing made sense. And um, I have sort of the opposite issue that he had. Now, I'm so terrified of that state of being that I feel like I'm stuck. And um, when I practice, it's like I, I can only go so far. Mm -hmm. And then... Uh, You're afraid it'll happen again or you'll come unglued, sort of? Yeah, I, I can't tell you. I mean, everything in my life has changed since that experience. Every part of my relative life has completely turned upside down. And I'm so afraid that that, that was wrong. And um, even when you were talking to him about it and sort of inviting that space, it was, it was this panic reaction mm -hmm. I could feel. I'm sorry, it's so that's that it's hard for you. Um, since we're alone here, can I ask you, like, what if anything seemed to precipitate that? What precipitate? What made that happen? Do you know? Were you meditating when it happened? Were you, did somebody say something or do something with you or to you? Did a, you know? Was there a loud sound that made you jump and everything changed? Like um, anything precipitate it right then that you could be, remember? I was, I was meditating, practicing on my own. I didn't have a teacher or, or a tradition or a lineage and, at that time. And I was practicing quite intensely every day, doing my very best at the practice. And um, it wasn't actually all of a sudden, it was gradual. But things just started to shift and change. And all of a sudden, the world, um, it seemed like, I, I kept saying, I'm walking around inside my own body. Mm -hmm. I'm walking around inside my mind. I, and um, everyone around me yeah. thought that I was absolutely insane. And then I right. started to think I'm, I'm actually going insane. Um, Maybe that's not the conclusion that everyone would draw, but so how are you feeling now? What's your name, by the way? I'm Nikki. Nikki. So how long ago was that? That was about a year and a half ago. Wow. That's a long time. So how did you do then that day and that week and that month and like, until now? And how are you doing? Well, you that... mentioned the teacher and a lineage. So did you talk to some people? Did you get some help? Did you see, I don't know who, you know, a therapist, a teacher, a yoga teacher, a somebody, friend? Uh, well, that day, that month, I stopped, I, I stopped really being able to function in my life. I, I had to stop working. I had to, I, and I thought I was really going nuts. Um, so then I, I talked to people I knew who were meditators, and they pointed me towards the Shambhala tradition and that 
is where I practice now. And I've found a lot of solace in that community and made some sense out of that experience and f feel a lot better about it in general, but still feel like there's part of me that when I'm meditating won't let me go mm -hmm. there, won't let me experience that again. Mm -hmm. um, is just yeah. like puts on the brakes. It's like, right. no way. Yeah. Well, that's like your basic sanity. Um, so did you get back to work and start feeling sane again? I mean, I don't know that you weren't sane, but you started to feel crazy because it's crazy. I mean, one reason could be it's crazy making that everybody says you're crazy. Doesn't mean you are crazy. Maybe you've had, uh, you know, a breakthrough, a spiritual awakening. Maybe you had a psychotic break. Who knows? That's why I'm asking who you saw, what you... I don't want to put words in your head, you know? What they say. What do you say? Like, are you back at it besides going to the Shambhala Center? Are you back at work and in life and feeling okay? Yeah. Besides this little hang-up about that you can only go so far in meditation? I mean, in the bigger scheme of things, that's a small problem. <laughs> True. Compared to being crazy, <laughs> unable to work, and unable to, I don't know what, function. That's contraindicated. We don't want that. Yeah. Well, I have, I got different opinions about it. My meditation teachers mm -hmm. say that, you know, that's a normal thing that happens in meditation. And what I needed was a teacher and some structure. Mm -hmm. And then people, other people in my life probably still think I'm pretty nuts. But yes, I'm, I'm feeling more... Well, my granddad thinks I'm completely nuts and I should become a rabbi. Have I mentioned this kind of thing before? So everybody has their opinions. I mean, she, they're dead, but they still think that. <laughs> well, they think they think that. I don't really believe they think that, actually. So that's why I'm asking you how you feel and what you're doing. Like, are you at work? Are you relating? Are you okay? Are you functioning, you know, you even, it sounds like you're meditating and you're studying Dharma at the Shambhala Center, so that's all good. Yes, and I Solid. feel, I feel like I want to keep going, like I want to keep moving forward on my path, but that, but that fear prevents me, even though it seems like logically I know that I, that it's not, um, maybe it's not real or it's not Mm -hmm. Solid. Maybe. Maybe it's not. So I, I have a good feeling about what you're, where you're coming from. So a couple of things. I don't want to dwell on this now. Perhaps you can come and see me for a private interview. You know, there's, everybody gets a private interview here. So I don't know if you're on the list yet. But why don't you come sooner rather than later? And even if, uh, meanwhile, uh, are you going to go to the um, new people's meeting this afternoon so you can talk to one of the teachers there, like Yeshe, Urgen, Urgent Nima, or Leslie, who, put up your hand, Leslie. Leslie knows about these things. She's a real crackpot. <laughs> <laughs> An old Dharma practitioner and therapist and mother and grandmother and probably great-grandmother by now. She's great. Okay. Thank you. And we'll talk more. It sounds good. I mean, painful, difficult, but um, it could be held in context in a slightly different way. You know, like you saw the 
dreamlike, illusory nature of everything, and you were, you did have a shift of your identity, like you said, like that guy said, like what you said, what, I'm walking around inside my body now, rather than I am my body, and things like that. Now you're talking about the unreality of things, so this could be very fruitful if held in the context of like you've glimpsed something, now you're working on it and maturing it, and then you can really realize the reality of that even while you still function and can tell the difference between green lights and red lights when you're driving. That's very important. And, you know, food and poison or medicine and poison. It's very important in the relative level to be functioning according to cause and effect. And to be sort of solid, you know, not stolid, but not fractured, not falling apart, unglued either, not necessary. Okay? And to the extent you can, keep practicing. It's very common to come up against this kind of um, blockage where the ego is afraid to let go because it already did once and it almost died which could be a good thing, but in context. So you don't die. We don't want you to die. We want you to live a long life as, a, as an ego-free woman of wisdom in this world that so needs such a person. Not a mental patient that needs to be walked around and be fed. That's not what we're talking about here. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for speaking up, too. It takes guts. I can see you've got a good, solid, you know, basic sanity and mental stability. So I think we can try to push it a little bit in a safe space here and see how it goes, and we'll stay tuned. Okay? Hi. Yes, hi. Um, my name's Cindy. And Cindy. Nikki, I have almost your identical experience in March 2013. I had a similar thing happen, and I'm a teacher, a public school teacher, and I um, finished the school year, and I've been on sabbatical this past school year, and through that experience was able to explore a lot of teachings and, and variety of meditation practices, and uh, and I actually was writing some things down as you were speaking, and I've been recently reinterpreting that original experience. I thought it was the stress response, but I don't think that's what it was. I think it was, you know, what made sense at the time, but I don't think that's what it was. So keep going. It gets better. Thanks, Cindy. Anybody? Questions? Sharing, practice questions, yes? I have a question about suffering and illusion. Uh, uh, uh. I was hoping to avoid that this week. Oh, okay. Well, forget I mean, about this it. whole then. life. <laughs> um, I do a, a Facebook page on grief that has people from all around the world, so I hear stories almost every day about murder and suicide and grief and loss and being stuck. And I always play with dark and light, but the idea that it's illusory, if you get the children out of the burning building, they're still gonna have the, star, the scars and they're gonna maybe walk into another burning building. So I don't get the idea of it. I can never accept the idea. I'm playing with the possibility of accepting the idea that anything is illusory. I don't have a weapon. If I took one out and I started shooting, it wouldn't be illusory. I would cause great pain and suffering. So I, I don't know how to look at things that are hurtful as not being really and truly hurtful and honoring that and then going on 
to the laughter and the love. But right. So that's, yeah. Well, besides the small detail that you're dealing every day with PTSD and whatever you said, murder and death, and you know, yesterday I did a funeral for two t in Garrison here for two twins who died within a few hours after being born. So, mm, yeah. yeah, I spent a few hours doing that with all my heart with the people who were there because that's very meaningful. So that's why in Buddhism we say it's like a dream, not that it is a dream. So working to try to help provide solace and sucker and, you know, feel better in order to go on instead of committing suicide as parents often feel when they lose children or whatever, you know, things like that. To make the nightmare into like a tolerable dream or at least a good dream if we can't just wake the children up from the dream. So like a dream. So just to take up now your uh, metaphor, you said you don't get the image of bringing the children out of the burning building because they'll still have scars and they might go into another one. That's a little bit overthinking. All Buddha was saying was all, he was really not talking about the children, he was talking about his teachings and himself, how he looked at it. That he didn't take things as seriously as others did, so he felt less burdened and afflicted by things in general. His spirituality is not about the others, really. To, go, to, to push the point, there are no others from that point of view. I'm not saying egotistically, I'm just saying that it's not about others. Being a good Samaritan is not about being kind to others. It's about your own integrity and character and heart and principles and understanding, whatever. Loving kindness is the only way of being. Wishing well for others, what's the, uh, what's the alternative? It's not about others, it's not for others. What's the alternative? Schadenfreude, wishing them ill? Rejoicing in their failure. So, do the children, when they wake up from the dream, you know, do they come, if you wake them up from the dream of being mauled by the tiger, do they come out with scratches? No, I'll just have this conversation myself. No, they may be traumatized by the nightmare, but that's different. They that, don't have claw a, marks. That's different. To know the difference between reality and what level of reality. They may have psychic scars. Then you have to deal with that. That's, so distinguishing the different levels of reality. So if somebody has a problem right now, like a stroke or something, we rush into action and help them and defib and call and take and, you know, etc. But not if they have, are dreaming about it. We try to wake them up. And if they don't wake up, we don't call the hospital either. We know they'll wake up in the morning. And have, then they have a bad dream that you talk about a bad dream. It's a different therapy than dealing with a heart attack or a stroke. So all of the dharmas, all the teachings, all the wisdom, everything we try to do is relative in that sense. And it has to be appropriate to the situation, that's all. If you say it's all a dream, that's just whiting out everything and leveling everything. Then I say, if it's all a dream, why do you even care? Why are we having this discussion? Why did you come here? Why don't you do something else this weekend? Like, um, you know, you probably wanted to stay home and, and watch the World Cup games all weekend. But you were, in, you were so desperate to wake up from the dream that you've come here to this austere monastery where you're not allowed to do anything except meditate. <laughs>
so you must be motivated. So, you know, within that dream, you're still like have aspiration or, you know, something's driving you. That's not, you can't just deny and pretend it's a dream. Oh, those are just dreamlike drives, you know, fears or drives or, you know, drivenness. No, we're heavily conditioned. Those ruts are pretty deep in the emptiness. As Milarepa's Guru Marpa sang, yes, my anger is as if carved in stone. How empty the stone is. <laughs> then you can walk through stone walls, which is the point of all the stories, you know, mystical stories about people walking through walls. It's about walking through our hang-ups and limitations and blockages. It's not, I mean, who, who cares about that level of magic? I mean, go and join a circus if you want. That's not what we're trying to do. Like I said about flying, it's about freedom, it's about the spirit soaring, it's not about we need to fly like a bird, you know. People literally always used to ask the Dalai Lama if he could fly. You know, they may still ask him if he can remember his past lives, but he's answered this so many times, can you fly? And he said, yes, I flew here from India. <laughs> you know, and then he says, on what airline? <laughs> So what are we trying to do here? That's important. So I hope we're communicating. Of course, if you're in the heavy lifting, deep care field of dealing with PTSD, or for that matter, strokes and heart attacks and heart surgeries or births and deaths, you have to, uh, you know, take action. You can't just say it's like a dream. Oh, those children died. Well, they were only here for a couple hours anyway. Go have some more. You can't say that. Who would want to say that? That's crazy. It's sad. Also, they weren't just there for a few hours. Somebody carried them for six months and loved them. And, you know, six months is a long time. There's many moments in the six months that they feel grief about. So saying it's all a dream doesn't really mean what I'm thinking, saying it's all a dream. Yes. Also, I'm going to reiterate that not all philosophies say it's all a dream. Some say it's just like a dream. It's dreamlike. So don't be so attached to its permanence. Still, you can deal with the impermanent phenomena, the temporary, you know, as it appears. You can deal with it. It's the thing, again, about honoring the sadness and the pain, and mm -hmm. when it comes up, letting it go as right. opposed to stroking it. Right, healthfully processing the experiences, pain, or it could be pleasure or other things, not totally reifying it and identifying with it and grabbing onto it and then suffering as soon as it changes. Thank you, good question. Thank you, thank you for and saying yes, I'm doing heavy lifting. PTSD is a big, uh, has become an interesting topic that Dharma principles are being applied to today, which is good. Yes, in the back there. Hi there. I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about um, the, the difference between separateness and autonomy. Um, so as you talk right. about autonomy and interconnectedness as kind of the goal. Okay. Uh, Do you have more? I'm ready to say. Okay, you, you say. Okay. <laughs> so if we think about development, I'm because this discussion we're having now is based on something I said that was a little developmental, not simultaneous. So development that 
Autonomy is more the goal than mere teen independence. So once I say the word teen, I'm talking about time and aging and development, right? So we need to develop, I mean, this is general thinking, everybody knows this from some form of psychology or growing up, from dependent children attached at the umbilical cord where our whole system is no different than someone else's, the mother cut the umbilical cord, still pretty dependent for some years, dependent children and grow up and individuate. We're not going to go into what a pain in the ass it is when they do. But we, have, we were there, remember? Been there, done that. So from dependent to individuating, which is a healthy, you need to go through to independent. But then that's not the end, just being free from. There's a free too. So to autonomous within interdependence. We're not just independent. Like, screw you. Screw you, Dad. Just, is the car full? You know, interdependent. You still have to f remember somebody filled the car if you didn't. So you're not totally, and, it, and whose car is it? And the insurance and the road laws and a few other details, like millions of them. So that's what I call autonomy within interdependence because we're also interconnected. We're not just independent. So we do have developed from dependent and try to temper the codependence and get independent and then realize that we're interdependent, but we can still be autonomous. Otherwise, we're afraid to make a commitment. We always have to be a teenage rebel. Well, whatever. You with me? I, I am, I guess. And in Buddhist thinking, because of the basic understanding of the facts of life, like the three main characteristics Buddha taught about life, impermanent, dissatisfying, the main things he taught about, the unenlightened life, normal life, worldly life, everything is impermanent, dissatisfying in the long run, and no permanent independent self. There's the independent thing. There's no independent essence to find. There's neither an independent table, because actually this is just some boxes tied together with crazy glue. And there's also no independent you and me. You know, self and other are relational, right? Like sights and visual consciousness. Just because there are things doesn't mean you can see them. There's independence with consciousness and with eyes that work and light. So interdependent, that's karmic causation. Interdependence. And yet, we, have to, we could realize freedom within that. Because we're not trapped. There's no us that's solid and separate from that that's to be trapped. You know, how did, the, how did the ship get in the bottle? How can I get out of the bottle? I feel like I'm trapped in the bottle. It's, it's a Zen koan, actually. It's an illusion. It's not a problem. The ship doesn't need to get out of the bottle. It's a ship in a bottle, damn it. It's perfect, as it is, ship in bottle. It may even be expensive. People want it. I guess um, in terms of the spiritual practice, there's the way in which cultivating uh, autonomy or cultivating the sense of autonomy 
it feels like cultivating the sense of separateness or sort of feeling right. the sense I haven't of talked about cultivating autonomy. I'm talking about developing stages. What we have talked about and will talk about continuously is cultivating mindfulness, cultivating awareness, loving kindness, unselfishness, cultivating the recognition of interconnected and interdependence, you see. And then we realize autonomy within interdependence because we're not trying to separate. That's the teen who needs to individuate and separate, separate and move out and get out of the nest and learn to fly themselves and all that, spiritually speaking. Thank you. Not cultivating separateness. I've said a few times, say, seeing through the illusion of separateness. So cultivating that kind of realization that sees through the illusion of separateness. And whether you call that seeing the emptiness of such concepts of separateness, or you call it non-dual awareness, or you call it no self, these are all uh, synonyms kind of circling around this central um, reality. Right, so I hope we're communicating. Thank you. That's why uh, Buddhism doesn't subscribe much to ideas like God. You know, the supreme creator that's eternal and the rest is impermanent and other things. Something that's separate. Something that was there before and will be there after. It just doesn't make sense to the Buddhist way of thinking, which is more systems-oriented. Cause and effect, you know, linking and circular, not linear. Not creation day and end of days. But circular, like breathing in and breathing out of the universe or something. It's not that we don't, uh, Buddhists, I mean, we Buddhists, let's say, don't believe in something that's beyond ourselves. Yes, we do. But it's not a separate thing. So we don't, it's not, you know, it's something. Thank you for listening to Lama Suryadas's Awakening Now Hour. We very much appreciate your support and hope you will continue by going to mindpodnetwork.com slash suryadas and link to the donate button or go to the amazon.com link for all of your purchases. Namaste. Did